Hello everyone and welcome to Evolve, the podcast that builds one another up, share your opinions, your thoughts, ideas, beliefs, and your feelings where you're never outcast for being who you are. Thank you for listening in and joining me as we continue with section two, the message. In that section, we'll continue with chapter six, creation, how life was meant to be. excited to continue with tonight's episode um, and we're going to continue with that episode but before we begin let's pray Lord we come before you tonight thanking you for allowing others to listen as we learn to share the gospel to share what is your word and knowledge that will help us as we live daily thank you father for this wonderful opportunity and ask that you bless those listening in Christ Jesus name we pray amen all right well we'll jump right in um, chapter six, and that is found in section two. Yes, we are in section two, a new section of at that. We started in chapter five, but then in uh, section two, the message. So, um, we are going to, um, continue with chapter six. And in that chapter, I just want to do an over a uh, review In that chapter, we'll learn about creation which begin with God, we'll learn that God is eternal, God is the creator, God is good, God is communicative, we'll learn that God created humans, first being Adam and Eve, as well as how the world sees it. So, let me begin with chapter 6, creation, how life was meant to be. Hey, I might believe in God if only God would give me some clear sign, like making a large deposit in my name at a Swiss bank. Woody Allen. You may have noticed that while people today offer a variety of answers to the meaning of life, the questions haven't really changed much from past generations. Is there a God? Who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? You may, you may have also noticed that today's celebrated skeptics are eager to share their thoughts and particularly their views on the biblical God. The late Christopher Hitchens, the author of God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, described the God of the Bible as a heavenly dictator and wrote that heaven would be like living in a celestial North Korea. And then you also had Richard Dawkins, another famous atheist, also wrote the book The God Delusion, depicts that God of the Old Testament um, describes him as racist. If only Dawkins would tell us what he really thinks. What a contrast their beliefs are to what we actually read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God is revealed as our creator who created life out of love, delight, and pure goodness. The biblical story of creation is presented as love as a love story from start to finish. Starting with God. 
In a world where we are presented with multiple choice starting points, we must start where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. The creation story tells us a great deal about who God is. God is eternal. He is before all things without beginning or end. He has no competitor or peer. He commands and it is accomplished. God is the creator. Through him all things came into being because God is the cause and source of life. God created out of nothing. He needs no help, which means that God is above and beyond all he has made and distinct from it. God is good. In Genesis and throughout the Bible, we see that God's character is righteous and holy, loving and merciful, trustworthy and faithful. God is personal and communicative. God is not some distant, impersonal power or an energy field. He is a loving, personal God who delights and shows parental, nurturing concerns over what he created. God created humans as the aspect of his entire physical creation and gave his highest oculate to them. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, what made Adam and Eve unique in contrast with the rest of creation was that only humans were created in the image of God. The first human beings were given language, creativity, love, holiness, immortality, and freedom to choose their actions. They were created to love and know God, to live in harmony with him and the rest of creation. God gave humanity a purpose to reveal God to the rest of his creation and to rule the world as God's stewards under his sovereign loving rule. Everything God created was made for God's glory and humanity's benefit. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tells us that Adam and Eve had a close, intimate relationship with God, a loving relationship with each other, fulfilling work to do, and a world full of pleasures, tastes, sights, and smells. They were created to enjoy God's goodness and submit to God's gracious will. All of Eden was given to them with only one restriction. And that was in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This restriction, as we saw in chapter 2, served as an important protection because it reminded Adam and Eve of the limits of humanity. They were creatures, not the creator. It was also a warning of the consequences if they chose independence instead of God dependence. They would surely die. This means that human beings are given a choice to accept or reject God's ways. Why is this so important? Because it reveals that God's world is founded on love, on relationship. Our first parents lived in the reality of God's original intention, dwelling in perfect unity and harmony without sin, suffering, and death. When people say if God is good, why would he create a world with so much brokenness? 
we can point to the fact that this broken will is not the way God designed it. Isn't that wonderful to know? The principal feature of life, life as God intends, is a lavish gift. The gospel message from start to finish is God's personal offer of amazing grace. Now we're going to look at creation, the world, how the world sees it. What objections do skeptics frequently raise about how life came to be? My purpose here is not to give exhaustive answers, but rather to help us get started. And let's look at evolution. Often skeptics want to jump immediately to the subject of evolution, the idea that life began in an evolutionary process. Atheist evolutionists believes that the theory of evolution and natural selection can explain the universe much better than the idea, an idea of an intelligent design carried by a God. What I often tell skeptics is that Christians have different views on creation and evolution over issues such as how old the earth is, what Genesis means by the word day, and to what degree, if any, God chose to use evolution. Christian opinions vary dependent on how we interpret Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Specifically on what kind of literary genre we think is being used and how we interpret the early chapters of Genesis in light of the entire biblical revelation. But this is not what I want to focus on in conversations with unbelievers. What non-Christians often ignore is that they cannot definitively answer the first cause of creation, how life actually came to be. However, we answer that question, we cannot do so based on scientific knowledge. Though they are usually reluctant to admit it, skeptics have a position of faith in this area just as we do. Usually, if we acknowledge right at the start that sincere Christians have different views on this subject, we don't have to spend much time on the evolution issue, nor is it necessary unless this issue is a deal breaker for someone, whether believers come to the view that God completed the job of creation in six literal days or over a much longer period. The heart of the matter is that God is the creator of all things. That is the biblical focus and it needs to be our focus as well. Let's look into science and Christianity. Another topic often raised is the assumed belief that there is a clash between science and Christianity. While at times there appears to be a conflict between science and faith, there is less evidence to support that view than skeptics may think. In fact, science as a field of study actually began as a result of the Protestant faith. Furthermore, there are many scientists today who are deeply committed Christians. The Oxford Dunn mathematician and devout Christian John Lennox, who famously debated atheist Richard Dawkins. It is fair to say that many people have taken it on trust that science 
has undermined or disproved religion, though they've never really thought about whether it's true. Let's take a look into reality is only what we can measure. There are some who scoff at the notion that there is an unseen reality behind what we can see. In other words, they are materialists who view reality as only what they can see, hear, touch, smell, weigh, measure, and calculate. They believe that creation began as an accident, and out of that accident, life became into being. That's something to think about. Therefore, since life is an accident and there is no God, life has no meaning. The question is, can they live consistently by their belief that life has no meaning and human beings have no intrinsic worth? In their deepest heart, do they really believe that their children and the significant others they cherish are simply meaningless pieces of protoplasm? Let's look into it. I am spiritual but not religious. Sometimes I talk with people who believe there is something beyond what they can see in the natural world. Perhaps they've experienced moments of awe or wonder when looking at a sunset or watching a dramatic storm over a lake. This view usually looks something like what a New Age devotee once said to me. I believe we must honor the God who dwells in our nature, remembering that rocks, trees, and fruits are as sacred as people. This view is more in line with the view that the world is either identical to God or, in every part, an expression of God's nature. This is, of course, different from the biblical description that says there is a personal God who existed before the world began and who is distinct from creation. One thing that usually challenges such a view of life is crisis. For example, the new age devotee that I quoted above upon learning that she might have cancer phoned a new age hotline. The person answering her call told her, you must look within to find your deity. You are the universe. You are God. You are a rock and a flower. My friend later asked me, if I am God, then what kind of God gets cancer? She could have added, what kind of God is cancer? I realized that moment that I needed a God outside of creation who was powerful. I longed for a personal God who loved me, not some divine impersonal energy. It was this experience that eventually led her to place her faith in Christ. Why creation is such good news. How do we communicate the relevance of the creation story in a way that shows it truly is good news? First, we need to share unhesitatingly our joy and excitement over who God is. God is our creator who created life out of love, delight, and pure goodness. The creation account is an incredible love story where we see God expressing joy and wonder over his creation like an artist delighting in his masterpiece. That is a far more compel compelling narrative that the Arid Settler once that says the world is the result of a violent catalytic accident. Creation is good. Not only is the creation story magnificent and moving, 
but it also provides a logical foundation and explanation for how to understand reality. In Genesis, God created the world and declared it good. God didn't say the earth was evil or worthless. Neither did he say it was divine and to be worshipped. The implications of this are massive. The creation story provides the reason for why we care for the earth and must never abuse it. It also shows us that we are not to mistakenly worship nature or objects, but rather the God who created all things. Creation is God's work. God created human life and called it very good. All human life is precious to God. Every human being bears God's image. That is why we are to treat human beings with dignity, respect, and love. It is why, for instance, we view racism as evil. The creation story also tells us that human beings were created to live in peace and harmony, not strife and chaos. The meaning of life from the biblical perspective is not about power, but about love, not about transactions, but about relationships. That is quite different from the modern secular narrative. One way to communicate the relevance of the creation story to skeptics is to point to the evidence of our God-imprinted natures. Let's look into our concern for justice, equality, and human rights. One of the remarkable, remarkable aspects of the creation narrative is that it makes sense of what most non-Christians already believe, that all lives matter. The secular narrative tells us that life is meaningless. So how can an atheist logically explain why human life must be valued? The creation story, on the other hand, provides the reason why we feel passionate about justice. Fairness and racial equality is because we are made in God's image. The creator God is a righteous God who loves his creation and who stands firmly opposed to all forms of injustice and not, you know, and he made us to have the same attitude and not the attitude of our own, but he made us to have the same attitude. Our response to beauty. When we read of the beauty in paradise in Genesis chapter one and two, we see that God is the source of beauty and he created human beings to recognize and respond to beauty as well. For example, the first recorded poem in the Bible is when God introduced Adam to Eve. Adam was overcome with wonder and awe. Genesis chapter 2 verse 23, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Once again, the challenge for skeptics is how to explain their response of wonder when it goes against the secular worldview that there is no ultimate meaning in life. An atheist friend of mine, after giving birth to her first child, said, Becky, giving birth to my son felt miraculous. Yet women have been giving birth since the beginning of time. So why am I so overwhelmed with wonder when I look into the eyes of my baby? How do I explain this sense of awe, especially when I am an atheist? What is wonder? Webster's Dictionary explains, defines wonder as the emotion aroused by something awe-inspiring, astounding, or marvelous. 
an event that is inexplicable by the laws of nature, the late renowned sociologist Peter Berger captured this idea of wonder when he wrote of signals of transcendence. According to Berger, these are phenomena that there are to be found within the domain of our natural reality, but appear to point beyond that reality. So as Oz Genuineness writes, our privilege as Christians and apologists by our lives as well as our words is to help people to hear, to listen, and to understand those signals and then to help them follow to where they lead. If we follow the logic of that signal, they actually moves us toward faith in God. When G.K. Chesterton came to London to study at Slade School of Fine Arts, he was, con he was a convinced atheist. Everywhere he looked, he saw evidence that the world was broken and dark. What broke into this world of darkness and pessimism? The wonder of the beauty of a dandelion. It was Chesterton's experience of wonder and encountering beauty that caused him to reevaluate his atheism. And this became the catalyst that led him to become a devoted follower of Christ. But wonder is a notion that is somewhat out of fashion at present. The author Flannery O'Connor points out from Mystery and Manners, We moderns are embarrassed by wonder because wonder suggests mystery. Moderns aren't comfortable with anything we can't control or dominate or explain away. That is why prayer is so important. We must ask God to show us what might cause our skeptic friends to start to respond in wonder. It's also why asking good questions is so important because they can gently help our friends to question their own skepticism, which may lead them to reconsider their own beliefs and become curious about what we believe. I came to know a Euro an Eastern European woman who was raised in a communist country by parents who were brilliant academics and fervent atheists. She too was an atheist and a gifted violinist. We began having a spiritual conversation, but they never seemed to go anywhere until the day I asked her this question. I'm curious, is there anything that has ever caused you to doubt your atheism? She thought for a moment and then answered, Just one thing, when I play glorious, beautiful music, like Bach composition, sometimes as I play, I become so caught up that it almost feels like I am worshiping. I am transported to some other place and I think to myself, I'm not just physical, a physical being with biological drives. There must be more to life than what I can see. But I know that sounds crazy. Actually, I replied, I think your response is very revealing. As a musician, you probably know that Johann Sebastian Bach was a deeply committed Christian. It's why he wrote Sole, Soli Dio Gloria on every piece of music he wrote. To the glory of God alone. Bach believed that writing and performing his music was an act of worship to God. So what you need to figure out is why your head believes one thing, but your heart is saying something completely different. They both can't be right. So which of your responses is closer to what is real and true? 
Actually, I wish there was a God, she said. But even if God exists, I am certain God isn't interested in me or the greatest passion of my life, my music. I said, did you know there are biblical descriptions of heaven that describes a place where there is glorious music and singing and worship, which suggests that music existed before the earth was created? I believe your love for music comes from the one who created music, God himself. Several months later, I invited her along with other skeptic friends to a Bible study looking at Jesus, and she came. What the Bible story, what was the Bible story that moved her to tears? The story of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 who are watching their flocks at night when suddenly the heavens open up and angels speak and there is glorious angelic praise. Though it's not entirely clear whether the angels sang or spoke their praise that first Christmas night, my friend was gripped. She asked where in the Bible it described music and singing in heaven because of our previous conversation. I had looked up other verses just in case she asked, so I read aloud how God describes what happened when he created the world. The morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Job chapter 38, verses 7 through 8. I read Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, explaining that this was a picture of when Christ returns to earth at the end of history and after the final judgment, when all believers are reunited with Christ, he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Tears sprung to her eyes again and she said, God himself sings. It's almost too beautiful to bear. Here's what had caused her to take Jesus' claim seriously. The reality that music is created and singing is something God does. In our evangelism, we need to answer the rational question of the mind. But we also need to show how the gospel answers our hearts as well. The gospel addresses the whole person and so must we. It was having a baby that caused my atheist friend to wonder if there was more to life. It was playing Bach that caused my violinist friend to experience awe and to question if God might exist. Never forget these experiences of wonder. Are there, you know, are there to point us to another reality, to a deeper reality, to the one we must, you know, we have been searching for, perhaps unaware all along. That is why we need to ask our non-Christian friends if they have ever had any experience so profound that it caused them even momentarily to wonder if God exists. Many people answer yes to that question. Some say they think they have one experience, you know, God's presence, once experienced God's presence, then, you know, we have these experiences are the beeping signals of transcendence. And our task is to, is to try to make people more aware of their human longings and desires and what their passion points to. After the last Bible study, my violinist friend said, Becky, when I discovered you were a Christian, I was determined that we'd never be friends. I loathed religion and felt believers were intellectual morons. I used every opportunity to say mocking things about Christians in your presence. 
What I couldn't understand was why you didn't avoid me. In fact, you actually seemed to like me. She went on, as our friendship grew, I saw that your faith wasn't mindless. You took my questions seriously, but you also asked questions that challenged my own beliefs and really made me think. Yet, I wouldn't have attended the Bible study if we hadn't first established a friendship. Then she added, No one is more surprised than I am to find myself so drawn to Jesus. That truth is, I'm not the same woman I was when we first met. Many of my prejudices about Christians have subsided, and I am realizing that there are intelligent answers to some of my objections to faith. I still have doubts. And I'm not ready to become a Christian, but I definitely want to keep exploring Christianity. Could we do another Bible study? To see someone move from deep hostility to wanting to continue exploring Christianity is a cause for rejoicing. When she saw the biblical story of creation, you know, of a creator God explained her powerful response to the beauty of music, she became increasingly open and started to take Jesus seriously. Creation is the opening act of the gospel story, and it is beautiful. So the obvious question is, how did we get from paradise to our present mess? No one doubts that our planet is in serious trouble. The challenge for all of us is how to explain the mess we are in, which is the topic of the next chapter. So I'm going to read the questions for reflections and you guys can answer those at home on your own time. If you'd like to share them with me, um, please do email them to me at evolvedtopics at gmail.com. So question number one, what truths about God and his creation in this chapter have most excited you? Which of the common objections discussed here do you come across most often. How would you answer those questions? That's question B in chapter two. And number three, as you think about how to communicate the relevance of creation account to skeptics, what aspects of that story has most struck you? Justice, beauty, wonder, something else. So those are the questions for reflections. That we um what an awesome chapter um this evening it was. It was wonderful. But that will bring this episode to an end. With next time we'll continue with chapter seven, the fall. What's wrong with the world? If you don't want to miss it, um, so you don't want to miss it, you don't. But if you haven't got your book or you would like to listen to this chapter within the Stay Salt book by Rebecca Manley Pippert. Why not follow along and get the Scribd? I think it's Scribd app. It's the S C R I B D app, so you'll never miss a chapter, and you can listen, you know, to all the chapters as often as you like. Again, that's the S C R I B D Scribd app. So get that app and download the Stay Salt book by Rebecca. Would you like to know more about the Bible or take Bible courses? Now you can visit and register at worldbibleschool.org. This is Tia Londa. I'd like to thank you for joining me and we will greet again on the next episode of Evolved.